Good morning, everybody. Thank you so much. Maybe it's not morning when you're listening to my podcast. It's morning when I'm recording it, and that's all that matters. I am Dr. Melissa Bird, and I'm so glad you've joined me again for The Thinnest Veil. Today, I am thrilled that my friend and colleague, uh, uh, Lahui White Bear, is joining us to talk today about um, indigenous issues and religion and colonization and all the things. So I'm just really get ready and buckle up because when Lou and I get going, it's always a good ride. So I hope you really enjoy this episode. Lou, welcome to my podcast. Hi everyone. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for the invite and looking forward to this combo for sure. That'd be great. Will you introduce yourself to my audience? Sure. Uh, my name is Lukwee White Bear, uh, Dr. Lukwee White Bear. And um, I am enrolled with the Coastal Band of the Chumash Nation. I have Waztec and Cochimi ancestry as well. I live in Corvallis, so a long ways from my people's homelands and have, I was raised mostly on Salette's lands over on the Oregon coast and have lived up here most of my life, um, either on the coast or in the Willamette Valley. Thank you so much. Um, so you and I met because uh, we started connecting about uh, me figuring out who I am in my native indigenous ancestry. And one of the th reasons that you and I connected was that you really helped me understand all of the issues around colonization, blood quantum, <laughs> like all of the rules that have been put in place that make it so that indigenous folks are not able to, um, how do I want to put this? Are not able to connect with their ancestry in the way that, that we really want to. I think mm -hmm. that's the easiest way for me to explain it. And one of the things that I so appreciate about our conversations is how much, how much you and I talk about what it means to be um, a person of Native ancestry here in this moment in time. And I was wondering if you would talk a little bit, one of the things I remember you talking about is the inability for Indigenous folks to practice their religion because mm -hmm. of federal law. And I was wondering if you'll talk about that for just a minute so people can understand, because the purpose of this podcast is to really bridge religion and spirituality and start having different conversations around that. And I was wondering if you'd talk a little bit around um, federal law and also, so I guess it's two different questions, Lou, because I'm rambling, but like, how do we connect to our ancestry? And also, how does federal law keep us from being able to connect to that ancestry and that religion? It's two questions, obviously. Just two little questions. All questions. Small Nothing questions. Big. Well, I think the main thing to think about with connecting to ancestry is like, it's more than just the acknowledgement of it. It's doing the work to like dig deeper and try to find those connections and learn more about the connections to the lands from which people come from. So I know like what's really beautiful about watching you is going back home and connecting with the land in a different way. And that's part of those connections. And a lot of people think like that once those once connections have been severed, they can never be um, restored. And that's not true because our ancestors will always call us back to them if we're willing to listen to them and um, hear them. And we want to be, have that connection restored. And so I know even with my own self um, connecting to some of 
my Aztec ancestry in Southern Mexico has been really healing for my family. Um, and because I was raised primarily with my um, Chumash heritage and ceremonies, and then also some stuff, obviously, from up here, because the family that brought me in my, with my stepdad and Salettes and understanding those ceremonies and connections to land and place and waters. Um, so it's multifaceted. It's not just how people think sometimes it's just an identity box to check, and it's not. There's a lot of layers to it. Um, and in colonization has strove really hard to uh, make it where it seems like um, it's just an identity box to check when it um, or that it's this thing to claim because of DNA testing that is really popular right now when those have their own roles and pieces to help you find clues but that's not the end of the story like it's much much deeper than that and um, the way that people were removed from land was really violent or the way that colonial borders made people leave identities behind. So for example, my great grandma, when she migrated from her village, she was no longer considered an indigenous woman from her village. And she was considered just the label of Mexican with a national label as a migrant worker. Um, and then she went to California from Texas. And so and like she still had her connection and knew who she was. And um, my mom shared some of the stories she told her and said that someday somebody was in a and our family was going to want to hear these stories and so to pass them down. And so I was that person to really want to restore our connection. And so those are examples of like how little, in uh, that little, those are big pieces of colonization, right? Borders and like removal and who gets to decide whose identity is what. And so um, right now there's, a, there's different ways to look at indigenous identity and, um, more broadly, when I talk about Indigenous identity within my scholarship and just with the work I do with students at Oregon State University, um, I um, talk to them about like Indigenous to the Americas because it's trying to, in the Pacific Islands, because it's acknowledging like there's these man-made borders that separate our identities. And there's also um, another aspect of it. So that's the cultural and like familial and land-based connection to being an Indigenous person. And then there's this legal piece that has to do with tribal sovereignty and nationhood that is critical um, in land management, water management and protections as well, not just the management, but protections of them, uh, religious rights, uh, all kinds of things for indigenous people that is tied to sovereignty. And so that is um, through the treaty making process that the United States did with tribal nations as sovereign nations. And a lot of people are like, oh, that was a long time ago. And why does that still matter? And I'm pretty sure most people listening to this really appreciate the Constitution. And so as part of the Constitution, um, it states in there that treaties are the supreme law of the land. And so if we really want to honor the Constitution and understand what that means, you have to honor and acknowledge tribal nationhood um, through via treaties with the United States government. And so there's this government to government relationship between tribal nations that exists within the United States. So this is really specific to the US, Canada has their own treaty making process that they did with their government and their tribal nations. Mexico has um, no treaties with their government. So it, it was a much different type of colonization. And that will take me like hours and hours to talk. About. <laughs> we'll just say that there's three different pieces. So there's three different nations that govern indigenous identity basically in North America. And then you bring in the Pacific Islands with uh, militarization of the islands um, and, and also the Caribbean as well with territories. 
One of the things that just struck me as I was listening to you talk, so I really do want to get back to this idea of practicing religion and what that, but one of the things that, so I actually messaged you yesterday that I was in this group of people and they have transit this group I've met with regularly because we're co-authors on a book. And one of the things that happened is they were like, and you need to do a land acknowledgement of where you are. And I did not. And I didn't because I actually educated them that when you do a land acknowledgement and there's no follow-up to that land acknowledgement and you use words like we're borrowing the land, uh, that, um, what is one of the other favorite words that people use in land acknowledgement? Um, that, uh, that, uh, that they were the original owners of the land, like indigenous people were the original owners of the land. And the word ownership is such a white supremacist term, right? Like to Mm -hmm. own land. Um, how do you feel like this idea of land acknowledgement it's it's problematic because it's just performative and then you're not doing anything afterwards, right? Yeah. So how so some of the people who are listening to this probably think that they're doing enough by saying I'm on somebody else's land and then leaving yeah. it at that. But what yeah. do you think people really need to understand about indigenous religion, ceremony, federal law, treaties, and land acknowledgments? Like where do you think Oh my gosh, how long do you want me to talk? I know, like I know, I just want to give a general idea (laughs) (laughs) okay so um, this land acknowledgement piece is really important though it is okay so the land acknowledgement is yes it gives it does get really performative people are like yes we acknowledge the past moving on um one of the things that's really important that i can tie into um the religious piece is that there's yeah you're on somebody's land anywhere you are in north america like literally and it's all indigenous lands, all native land. Um, and tribes were forced, whether or not they, people are like, well, they signed the treaty. People were, it was a matter of life or death to sign those treaties and be removed. It wasn't like a happy, like, oh, this sounds great. I'm going to cede, which means sign over all these millions of acres. Um, and like you said, it's a different relationship. It's not the um, ownership piece. It's a relationship piece with land and waters. And a Anywhere we're at, there has there is bound to be areas that were used for ceremony and that there's sacred sites on. There's burial sites all over the place that get desecrated on a regular. Um, and so it kind of is one of those things where people look at it like, oh, they just were here and they lived here. You live in relationship with the land and the waters and your entire cosmos, your whole knowledge systems are all based upon that relationship. And so in, if you don't have that relationship anymore, or um, if you've been removed, it doesn't mean it was ever like completely severed. Like I said earlier, it's still there waiting to come back to. And tribes still have, the sovereign nations still have a right to those areas for their ceremonies, to gather medicine, um, to do all the things they need to from that religious aspect, and also a health aspect, because there's a lot in there's a lot of foods, traditional foods that are associated with native lands and waters, obviously, because that's what people did and still do. Um, so I think the present tense of there's still that relationship and understanding and respecting that there's still that relationship um, is where um, 
where people kind of forget about with the land acknowledgements and they don't think about the tribes in a present tense or even know what's going on them, what are critical issues to them. Um, so, yeah. I feel this so, so deeply when I go home, mm-hmm. right? When I'm in Utah and by, by home, I mean, Utah, when I am there, so everything it's, it's like, it's like everything locks into place for me. Almost. I can almost feel all of the energy in my body just line up so perfectly. And I remember things and I prayers pop into my head, like language comes into my head when I am there. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's such an important thing. I think particularly for people who are not, do not have any, you know, Jim and I joke all the time. He's the whitest white guy on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> like he's so white, but like, because that's his ancestry mm-hmm. and but I think for people who are not indigenous or don't have indigenous native ancestry, there, there's something so important about understanding the land. And, and I think what's, what's really, I love what you just said about sovereign nations still have a right to the land Mm -hmm. ceremony and religious purposes. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about um, why people think that folks can practice ceremony openly and why folks still don't have the opportunity to do so because of their religion. Right. So what happened was in the late 1800s, I have to look up the exact year, um, there was a thing passed called the um, Code of Indian Offenses, and it was following um, some of the practices with the ghost dance and um, in cultural revitalization Um, movements of the late 1800s when people were being sent to boarding schools and everything. And so there was a lot of things going on during that time period. And um, one of the things that happened was through that code, the outlaw of religious practices for um, indigenous people, um, as well as the outlaw of the ceremonial roles that people held. So like the equivalent of somebody's um, religious leaders. And so those were those roles and the actual practice was um, punishable. And um, it wasn't until 1978 until the American Indian Religious Freedom Act passed, um, which made it possible to do those ceremonies in the open. Um, What I will say is that ceremonies still happened in secret. (laughs) Like people still practice their ceremonies Um, but they had to do so very underground and not in the open. And so they had to modify how some of those practices happened. Um, And some of them, they uh, would kind of morph into like almost performance. So for example, here on the coast, the feather dance was done during like 4th of July parades and stuff like that. So they can still take their feathers out and dance, but it was, it was for the entertainment of white people basically, but they were still using that space to be able to do their dances, which was really important um, and pass that knowledge down. And then their boarding schools really interrupted that process though. And um, this forced assimilation and forced religious indoctrination on kids um, and the stripping of languages to be able to understand the songs that happened. And that went all the way through to, um, to like my parents' generation, basically the boarding schools and they're still in existence, but in a different way. And so with that Religious Freedom Act, 
um, it only applies to federally recognized tribal members. So when we're talking about nationhood is um, where um, that law comes into play. So if, to be able to have eagle feathers and to practice um, certain ceremonies, you have to be a member of a federally recognized tribe. Which and a lot that of is what not. is so important for us to, to talk about because I literally, someone said, well, I thought Carter fixed that in the 70s. And I said, yeah. no. I, and I said, and I don't know why, but I'm going to find out. So I'm really glad you said that. It just gave me the full body chills because, yeah, because so that that's only for federal rec federally recognized tribes yeah. and only for people who are enrolled in that, those tribes, correct? Yes. Like, so if somebody like a big thing going on right now is tribes, tribal nations are having to decide what they want to do because as their sovereign right, they're able to determine their membership of their tribes who counts as an enrolled tribal member or an enrolled tribal citizen, as some of them um, like to use that terminology. Um, and they have criteria and some of that's based on blood quantum, which was introduced by the government. So dividing up how native you are, divide the federal government. Blood. What was that? The federal government. It was the federal government. Yeah. Um, is the one who introduced that to tribes and it became part of their enrollment processes because they had to prove who their members were through numbers, sort of like how we have social security numbers, tribes have tribal role numbers, um, and that's how they determine their um, they're a citizen or a member of their tribe. And what happened with that is over time, I mean, people end up having kids with people outside of their tribes historically and in contemporary times. Like, um, and what happens is somebody's blood basically gets divided up generationally depending on how many of those, um, how many times somebody has kids with somebody outside of their tribe. It doesn't matter if it's another native person. Like, for example, both my parents are native from different areas and different tribes. Um, a lot of native by the standard of blood quantum, but my, um, if I, if my tribe did blood quantum, it would, it wouldn't be super high because of, of where I'm enrolled because of how blood quantum works. We use descendancy. And so it depends. Um, so some people, just because they're from a nation, like a descendant, doesn't mean they're enrolled or a citizen of that tribe. So therefore that law doesn't apply to them. And therefore it's a big risk to possess something like an eagle feather, which would be used ceremonial because of the um, Endangered Species Act with eagles, um, the only people that can possess eagle feathers, like real ones. So if you have one and you're not native, you're breaking a federal law, please give it to somebody that needs to be holding it. Um, those feathers are protected for a reason um, because of environmental degradation and also illegal hunting and selling of feathers, um, which is highly offensive to indigenous peeps who use those feathers ceremonially. So, for, so if we have an eagle feather and you're not a member of a recognized tribe, it's a risk and it's something that indigenous people kind of assess all the time. Like, is it worth it? For me, I would say, yeah, it is because it's necessary for the practices that um, I do. Luckily, I have kids who are federally enrolled tribal members. And so those feathers can be under their possession technically. And it's just weird. It's so important for people to think about from a, a religious and spiritual standpoint, which is what I am trying to help people understand through my work is, mm -hmm. and I'm getting super emotional. It's an emotional topic. Is that... This is so, it's so important mm -hmm. because I can't enroll because my tribe still uses blood quantum. Yeah. 
-hmm. they have a lot of rules. And I think part of it is just because of the conservative nature of where they are geographically. But I, I think that this idea of understanding descendancy and quantum, because I think woke progressive people think that asking how much Indian are you, literally I've been asked that question, is so irrelevant to our ancestry and who we are as human beings mm -hmm. and how deeply it plays into federal law and understanding the religious and ceremonial practices of indigenous people. Mm -hmm. it, it's so important. And, and you and I kind of joke here and there about, <laughs> remember when your feed was full of white people using indigenous practices for like a year? Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> and it would just kept coming up over and over again. You're like, why am I getting another one of these, right? Yeah. This is why it's important because the, the freedom of religion and, and the freedom to practice ceremonial roles and practices, I think about how important communion is for me when I'm in church. Like there, that ceremony is so beautiful and, and it, it connects me to spirit in a way. Like I used to weep when I first started going to church, I would weep about it. It was so beautiful. And the same is true when I learn the, the religious practices of my indigenous ancestors, when I understand the prayers and the, the singing and the language around ceremony and mm -hmm. why you, you engage in certain things also as a Celtic person, right? Like understanding all those things is what gets me closer to spirit. Mm -hmm. It's what tethers me to the divine. And it, and it connects me to creator mm -hmm. in a way that is, and the earth in a way that is so profound. And, and this is why I want people to understand that, yes, we, there is an act so that, that in, indigenous folks can practice their religion, but only specific people. Mm -hmm. Right. There's still so much discrimination and misunderstanding about what this truly means for people to be able to engage in ceremony and practice. Yeah. Well, it's also important for people to think about um, that for Indigenous people, we're the only one that has a specific law about religious freedom, right? Instead of it just being a given constitutional right as U.S. citizens. And so it's really specific and it's kind of messed up I mean not kind of it is it's like you really, <laughs> it's really messed up. like it's like you're at this we're the original people of these lands and waters and we're the only group of people who has to have a federal law which has its limitations to practice religious freedom instead of it just being via the constitution I think it is so important that people mm -hmm. understand that like y'all yeah. if, if you take anything away from this conversation please take that please start talking about that and thinking about that and understanding that like I cannot imagine if I went to the bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of Oregon and said you're done mm -hmm. like you can't do this anymore you can't do communion anymore you can't stand up and preach as a woman anymore like if we started to do or as an Asian American person right because she is not, she's the first Asian um, woman to hold a bishop's position in the Episcopal church, I think in the whole entire country. But like, oh. if we started to tell people that they couldn't do that anymore, 
people would just completely lose their minds. Yeah. It's so the constitutional right. Yeah. But only mm-hmm. for special people. Mm-hmm. I.e. white people. Okay. Um, one more thing before we go. I just thanks for making me cry on my podcast. That was really great. I really appreciate it. It's really good. Thank you, Dr. <laughs> Whitebear. Um when when you think about just your own your own journey on this process of spirituality and and ceremony and connection what do you wish more people understood about about being willing to risk opening yourself up to be vulnerable with spirit hmm. Um, I would say that it's a gift to be able to do that, right? And I don't think everybody looks at it as a gift to be able to open yourself up to spirit. Um, and I'm from the first generation of indigenous peeps that was born into having religious freedom because of the sacrifices of my parents' generation and grandparents' generation and everybody who kept the ceremonies going before. And so for me, it's um, it's an honor to be able to step into spirit in that way without the same, even though there are limitations, without the same type of limitations that they had before. Um, and just really think it's an honor to um, help pass those legacies on to my kids and help them understand the importance of stepping into spirit and the unknown and um, embracing it as part of who we are. And as part of our responsibilities for the future. I think that that is also for just people in, in the general population to understand that you're the first generation of, of people who can practice your religion. And that's a really big deal that I think most people who think about spirituality and religion don't they they don't even make that connection that 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 we have people who live on these lands and who are our neighbors and our friends who are barely able to practice mm-hmm. their religion in the 21st century. Yeah. Huge, so powerful. Lou, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening people. Yeah, that was really great. Thanks for making me cry. Um, for those of you who want more information about this, um, I will put a couple of research resources uh, in the show notes. Also, I've talked about this a million times, but if you have not yet read Gathering Moss or Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer, I highly recommend it. Also, the poet Joy Harjo is one of my most favorite poets who really uh, talks a lot about the connection between um, ceremony and land and spirit. So I highly recommend those two authors if you want to explore this more. And I will put links to those also in the show notes. Thanks so much, Lou. Have a great day. Thank you.